Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, August 13th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Serretta. Joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, so we haven't done a news episode in like a week, and uh, that's not because we had better things to do. It's, the news has been kind of slow around here. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's on their summer vacations or something. Uh, in Hollywood, but we, we do have a week worth of news to get to, so let's uh, let's talk about it. First of all, let's 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 lead with Star Wars because a lot of people like to hear about Star Wars, and I like talking about Star Wars. And uh, Taika Waititi obviously has signed on to do a Star Wars movie. We know that that was announced last year, or was it the year before? It, it was announced at some point during the pandemic uh, through like some kind of live stream. And uh, recently, he's been doing some interviews. He was interviewed by Wired. Wired did this like long profile on him. We don't really know much about this movie, but this is what he told Wired. They asked about the project, and he said, it's still in the exterior space stage, but we've got a story. I'm really excited by it because it feels very me. Now, uh, for those of you who have never read a screenplay or tried to write a screenplay, I think what what he means by the ext dot space is that's kind of like the slug line that you you enter the script. And I'm not only is that the slug line, but that's probably the beginning slug line of the script. You know, before the the Star Wars logo <laughs> pans up into the galaxy. So I think what he's saying here, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ben. Is he saying that he has not started writing it, but they have a story? Yeah, that's what yeah. I that's what I got from that. Okay, <laughs> just want to make sure I'm not reading too much into that. Um, but I, I think what's interesting here is he's really excited about it because he because it feels very me, and you know me, you know I, I am obsessed with Star Wars. So I thought, what what does that mean for Star Wars? What does that mean for this movie? So I was I was thinking about this. Uh, earlier today and i was wondering you know what makes a taiko atiti movie a taiko atiti movie like and for for me what i was able to suss out is that you know it's always funny in some way 
It's uh, sometimes quirky. Uh, sometimes like feels very like homemade and with like the titles and transitions and stuff like that. It, it always has surprising amount of heart and will often get you to cry. He's done a lot of coming of age movies like Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, he usually uses a relationship between an older man and a teenager. Um, Jojo Rabbit, I think even though like, you know, most people would classify it as a war movie, I think it's more of a coming of age movie about a boy like falling in love and beginning to understand, you know, what's happening around him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Eagle vs. Shark is a comedy about shy misfits finding love, you know, so it's, it, he often like misfits are at the center of it. I think there's a few outliers here. Obviously, what we do in the shadows is a mockumentary and it's i guess it's about misfits they're misfits vampires mm-hmm. uh and uh thor ragnarok is about uh misfits it's a buddy adventure misfit movie i guess um yeah especially with the um korg and meek characters which you I, I really feel like those are um you know th- that is taika waititi really inserting his own you know sort of personality and stamp on you know inside this this giant marvel machine kind of thing um th- I don't think anybody else would have added those characters in, in the way that they are, <laughs> you know, in, in Thor Ragnarok, except for him. Yeah. And he plays one of them. So he, he often is in his own movies. He often uh, maybe isn't the starring role. He's sometimes like a, a smaller role in his movies, although he has had some big parts. Um, and another thing, when I was thinking about all his movies, his films usually very like make these fantastic use of locations like they're as much about the people in the movie as they are about the location that they find themselves trapped in mm. and um i don't know i, I also oh one last thing about <laughs> uh they're they're often about like damaged families and awkward relationships and uh sometimes between father and son sometimes between friends uh what does all this say for what a Star Wars Taika Waititi movie would be, Ben? Oh, man, I have no idea. That is a lot of things, and I agree with all of them. I think you were able to really like uh, condense you know, a lot of the, the major through lines of his career. I'm not sure how all of that sort of um, you know, f- uh, forms a whirlwind of a Star Wars movie, though. Like, the, there's so much, you know, this is, this is what I've been and, and several of us have been waiting for for a long time is like, a brand new, uh, you know, what seems to be an original Star Wars movie, right? Like there's, there has not been any indication that um, the story that he's going to tell in this film is connected to any other existing Star Wars plot lines, right? Not yeah, yet anyway. I, I don't think so. Like when, when it was announced, when Kathleen Kennedy announced it, she announced it showing the Star Wars logo that was like a hand-drawn logo. I guess the best way you could describe it, it was like a hand-drawn version of a blocky stone type face for the Star Wars logo. Hmm. That kind of looks like a Ben-Hur, like the Ben-Hur logo, if you remember that logo. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I think many people at the time were theorizing, oh, he's doing the Star Wars version of Ben-Hur. And I think it was just like, they're like, let's find a quirky hand-drawn Star Wars logo to announce this way. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah so I, I i don't know i don't have any ideas here but uh yeah i'm excited all those elements come together I'm, I'm very very curious about that because i think you're right i think you really like hit the nail on the head there um have we what is the funniest star wars movie peter 
Oh, uh, what is the funniest Star Wars movie? I don't even know. Because um, Star Wars is not a franchise that's really known for its humor. There have been, you know, there are joke scenes here and there. There are jokes peppered throughout. But is there one that is like, um, you know, closer to a comedy than the others? I mean, I, I guess Solo was going more for comedy. No? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I guess if that's the closest they have to like a... A traditional comedy then yeah this this franchise is not um you know it's, it's relatively serious so uh if he says it's it feels very me the first thing that i think of when i think of taika waititi is humor um that combination of humor and heart that you're talking about so uh it's sort of like james gunn in that way um so yeah i'm 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 very curious to see what a star wars comedy looks like because i feel like it's almost impossible for him to make something that isn't <laughs> yeah. that isn't funny. So uh, I think by default, whatever he makes will end up being the funniest Star Wars thing. Okay, here's a question for you. I, I think without a doubt, it's comedy. We 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 know it's going to be comedic, even if it's a drama, which some of his movies have been comedy dramas. Uh, it's it's going to be funny, but so many of his movies are coming of age movies. Do you think this is going to be a coming of age movie? Broom boy, let's do it. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to some TV talk here. Um, FX has ordered some new Ryan Murphy anthology spinoff shows. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of them is called American Love Story. Uh, this, is, this is all sort of in the vein of his uh, American Horror Story anthology show and American Crime Story, which he's done a couple incarnations of. Uh, there's a new one coming called American Love Story, which details the courtship and eventual marriage of John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn Bissett. Uh, so that's one. And then there's also one called American sports story, which I, (laughs) this sort of came out of nowhere to me, but it it does tap into that crime aspect that, uh, Murphy seems so interested in as a storyteller. Um, because it's not just like a typical, you know, sports documentary kind of thing. It's telling the story of Aaron Hernandez, who is a football player that actually went to college with at the university of Florida. He was on the football team, uh, there. And then he ended up going to, uh, play professionally for the New England Patriots, and he got involved in a murder, and then ended up taking his own life. And there was a—I mean, it was a very, very high-profile case of uh, an active NFL player basically like tanking his own uh, prospects because um, there have been documentaries about this and stuff. So if you want to like learn more, you can go seek out all of that stuff. But anyway, Ryan Murphy is going to be. Um, Dram, uh, whatever. What, what is it called? Like, uh, you know, uh, applying his dramatic touch, I guess, to uh, to that story. Yeah. So he's done American Horror Story. He's done American Crime Story. Now he's doing American Love Story and American Sports Story. What what more could he do? I guess he could do like American Comedy Story. Do like the <laughs> the story of like uh uh bill cosby i don't know does anybody oh, want to see that probably not <laughs> wow i don't know that, that, i'm not sure if that's a comedy uh what else could he do you, what other genres could you fit uh american western story <laughs> sure yeah um i won't watch any of it because i do not i do not care for ryan murphy as a storyteller um even though the the western idea i guess does sound more interesting to me than a lot of the other stuff here um yeah, I mean, I guess there's still, as long as FX is happy with the <laughs> results of what he's doing, um, because he, he, I mean, a lot of these shows rack up a ton of Emmy nominations. So I feel like the Ryan Murphy family of shows is sort of a, a I mean, at this point, it's like one of the crown jewels of FX 
programming. Yeah. So but you don't I like mean, any of the stuff he's done? No, not really. Uh, I know everybody raves about the O.J. Simpson, uh, uh, whatever, whatever. American Crime Story. Yeah, the, the O.J. Simpson season of American Crime Story. And um, I got, I don't know, maybe three episodes into that and just could not, uh, couldn't do it. I know that everybody says that that's the best one. So if that's the best <laughs> one and I couldn't finish that, I'm absolutely not watching any of, the, any of, the, of these other ones. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of him. And especially when he's like heavily involved, I feel like... The American Crime Story season with OJ was the one he was most hands-off on. It didn't feel like his style feels more style than substance. Mm-hmm. Style over substance. Like I I feel that with American Horror Story, I, I've liked some of those episodes, but I feel like it just ends up being more style over substance. And I I tried watching that Versace season of American uh crime story. I didn't like it, but I don't know. Neither of these stories sound like anything you'd want to watch. Um, no, I mean, especially the the Aaron Hernandez thing. I feel like there have been like actual documentaries that that dive into that story in a in a real way, and I just don't think I need to see it <laughs> fictionalized through the Ryan Murphy like uh, you know highly slick sort of glamorized lens. Um, I guess I don't really know much about the real lives of John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn Bissett, but I don't think a Ryan Murphy show is the place to go if you're actually curious about the real <laughs> event, you know? True, true. Okay, let, let's talk about some other TV news. HBO has renewed The White Lotus for a second season. Second season. I know we haven't uh, done a water cooler episode with me in a while, but this is a show that I've been watching lately, so I, th- I thought I'd bring this up um, because I think if you're not watching The Light Lotus, you should check it out on HBO or HBO Max. And this show is from Mike White, who has been involved in a lot of things. What did, He wrote um, School of Rock. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else has Mike White done? I, I don't have it on top of my. I want to say he was behind an HBO show called Enlightened, which I've never seen, but I know is is very well respected. I think he that's one of his big uh, claims to fame. Yeah, I remember um, first seeing him in the movie Chuck and Buck, which I think he also wrote, and that was like many in the '90s or something like that. Yeah, Enlightened. Uh, he was the creator of that Year of the Dog. He did a movie. He wrote Nacho Libre, um, School of Rock. Uh, the good girl. Oh or, yeah, he was a producer on uh, Freaks and Geeks as well. Yeah, and uh, Orange County, and wrote a couple episodes of Dawson's Creek. Anyways, okay, we we've gone over his uh, pedigree <laughs> there. He uh, he's kind of a, a strange dude. I, I I like what he creates, and what the White Lotus is is this. It's a six episode miniseries. I guess it's a six episode. Season one now. It's not a miniseries anymore. Or maybe it is a miniseries. We'll <laughs> find out. Uh, it takes place on this Hawaiian resort, an inclusive Hawaiian resort for wealthy people. And it's it's kind of like a paradise. And it, the show follows – it's an ensemble piece. So it follows many different stories of different people staying at the resort. Uh, uh, one is um, – this guy played by Steve Zahn and his wife, who's played by Connie Britton. Another is this uh, this woman that's uh, <laughs> grieving over the de- uh, a death. Her name's uh, I mean, sorry, she's played by Jennifer Coolidge. There, there's a bunch of people. Anyways, it's it's one of those shows that these stories all intersect at this this paradise of a resort and. 
the tension builds in like the moment if you ever like uh you know a an ensemble piece where the tension builds and all the stories kind of collide at moments like it will think like the the shit is going down all at the same time it's it's one of those kind of things but the the, the interesting thing about this series is the setup and the setup is the first scene so i'm i'm spoiling the first scene of this show and i think it's probably in the trailer i never watched the trailer but basically the first scene of the show takes place after this vacation with uh one of the characters at the airport and he looks miserable and someone across from him is like asking questions like where did he stay like trying to find out like whatever and uh you find out that someone at the resort uh i don't think they were killed is dead we see their body being moved into the plane in a body bag. And then you cut to the, you know, beginning of the vacation and everything. Is so there, there's the, that tension of finding out like, you know, who's going to be the dead body? Like what mm-hmm. happens, what leads to that? And it's also, I think at the core of the story, it's, it's a darkly funny uh, show. It's, it's about privilege. It's about rich white people and uh, the poor people that are Hawaiian natives that, you know, had their land stolen from them and now have to serve them at this resort. Um, so it's kind of kind of like that. It, it's smart and well acted. I, I'm really enjoying it, but I also didn't. I, it, there's one episode left. Uh, I've, I've seen five. There's six episodes in the first season. I don't know how you do a second season. So I'm very surprised that they have announced a second season for this. I know in our write-up for this, uh, we we featured a quote from Mike White when I think he was promoting the show and someone asked him, like, is there a chance of a second season? And he was like, I don't think you can or like he, he was saying like maybe but i don't th- he said i don't think you can credibly have all the season one guests on the same vacation again but maybe it could be a marvel universe type thing some where some of them would come back so there's a possibility it could be like you know the ryan murphy anthology formula where you have the same actors coming back or mm. maybe a couple of them come back uh, i'm interested to see what what they do because this show is actually worth your time have you seen the show ben I have, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, I think the the real um, what they've said about season two so far is that it's going to take place at an entirely different White Lotus property. So it's not even using the same uh, Hawaiian hotel location. And I think that's a really smart way to do it because I, I sort of assumed, okay, if they're going to do a second season of the show, it's just going to be new guests cycling through and you'll keep the same uh, hotel staff characters on as like through lines throughout the entire show. But I think this is a, a arguably a smarter way to go about it because the white Lotus is just the brand of hotel. So you can go to like any country, any city in the world and just pick up, you know, drop us into that world all over again. And it doesn't even, I mean, the white Lotus is a high end hotel. So you might be dealing with some of the same um, thematic elements, I guess. But I think by changing the geography, and, and cycling out the cast and giving a ton of new people opportunities to to take the, the spotlight. Um, that's a really smart way to approach a second season of the show. I agree. And I think many of the staff are going through their own arcs that I, I feel like it would be, it wouldn't make sense to bring them back for another season. So it's, yeah, it, it's yeah. good to explore new, new characters. 
where would you like to see them go? Because this season is set in Hawaii. I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, what other luxury all include like Dubai or. Yeah. It really depends on like what I assume Mike White is going to be involved in, in the second season. So I'm, it really depends on the type of like underlying stories or, or tensions or conflicts that he's looking to explore. Because, you know, if it's another story about, um, you know, like the, like you were saying, like the uh, people, the indigenous populations land being taken. I mean, you would have to yeah. tailor the the location to that. Um, you could take it into, you know, a big city and just have like uh, you could have a, I don't know, it, you could have it be set in in Paris or something and do the whole thing about like the tourism industry and and you know completely change the um, the underlying thematic elements of, of what the show is. So I feel like there's there are really a lot of possibilities here, which is why it's kind of exciting. Yeah, uh, I just didn't think that the show could be you know, quote, a franchise. <laughs> yeah, know, I thought yeah. it was just going to be a one uh, season miniseries thing. So I'm, I'm just uh, surprised. Anyways, uh, let's talk about some other TV stuff. Uh, Stranger Things. There's been talk in previous years of them doing like a spinoff. Uh, I know we got an update on that. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So Sean Levy, who is one of the executive producers of Stranger Things, uh, spoke in an interview recently where somebody was asking him, about the possibility of spinoffs. And he he gave this long-winded quote, but it ends with, uh, certainly those conversations are hardly evolved, but they're also not non-existent. <laughs> was this quote. <laughs> so that the idea that uh, <laughs> you know that something like that is not non-existent is one of the least confident announcements I've ever heard. That is very much somebody hedging their bets uh, and not necessarily um, you know, confirming that anything is is actually in the works or not. But uh, Stranger Things is like one of the biggest Netflix originals of all time. And it's certainly, you know, as much as Netflix likes to hide the numbers, the exact numbers of viewership and stuff for, from everybody, the popularity of Stranger Things, the way that that show has, uh, has poked through into the zeitgeist and really um, become a, a mainstay that people really, really care about uh, is undeniable. And so the idea that uh, this show is going to come to an end, but that Netflix would not be interested in just letting it end naturally um, and and uh, just you know letting that revenue uh, lie there on the on the sidelines uh, makes a lot of sense to me that they would want to to continue this story in some way or spin it off or uh, continue this world in some way. Well, I think in the second season they had that episode that kind of introduced that there were other people like Eleven, mm-hmm. and it seemed like that was a setup for a spinoff. But that episode was. I think probably the poorest reviewed episode of the entire franchise. So yeah, far. it's my my least favorite for sure. Yeah, so I, I'm guessing that was a setup, and then they were like, "Oh, uh, maybe not." Um, you know, what I would like to see them do if they do a, a, another Stranger Things or spinoff or a sequel. I'd like to see them do like just have another show, Stranger Things, and have it set like in the '90s and have it be about a, a bunch of different other people and something different but kind of i you know what what is stranger things i guess it's aping the stephen king and Mm -hmm. uh i guess you would have to what would you ape about the 90s i guess you'd be doing what netflix is already doing with um what is fear street stuff yeah fear street stuff yeah yeah but that, I think that could be done as a series. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking like a, a Steve and Robin show because those characters are, are oh, yeah. supporting characters uh, in the main series. And like once the the main kid actors, uh, you know, wrap up their storylines, I feel like it would be, um, 
you know, it, it would feel weird for only one or two of them to come back in some sort of spinoff thing. So, but the Stephen Robin characters, I feel like, have established a really good dynamic after the most recent season. And, um, and you know, I, I would easily, I could easily see them, you know, uh, going off in a new direction. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's now talk about a TV series that they're trying to work off a old movie that I don't even was think was considered a big hit when it was released. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Alex Proyas, who directed a film called Dark City in 1998, uh, is talking about making a Dark City TV show. Um, he said recently that they're in the very early stages of that, and he's having to reanalyze the original movie to basically go back and, he says, uh, kind of jog my memory as to what we actually did and what I think worked and what I think didn't work and reevaluate my own film. So that's been a really interesting experience, which I've not done before. Um, so it looks like he's, he's trying to reverse engineer a dark city TV show out of the original movie, which I know had a lot of, you know, a bit of a troubled production and um, <laughs> some of the, the uh, I guess the theatrical cut was not exactly what Alex Proyas wanted. Um, but uh, this is the guy behind movies like gods of Egypt and, uh, I think he directed that Nicolas Cage movie knowing from all those years ago. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, Alex Preuss is not exactly like a, an A-list uh, top tier Hollywood filmmaker, but um, I know a lot of people really love dark city. That was a, a precursor to the matrix and um, you know, explored a lot of the same types of ideas. And uh, I, I'm not personally a big fan of that movie. I think I only saw it once because of its connection to the Matrix. I remember around that, you know, a few years after that, people, um, there being a lot of conversation about the similarities that those two films shared. So I was just curious about that. So I watched it probably, I don't know, 2002 or something like that and have never gone back and revisited it because I just didn't, it didn't really connect with me. Um, but uh but yeah, I don't know. What what do you think about Dark City, Peter? Do you have a relationship with that movie? You know, I was also not like the biggest fan of Dark City. I like some of the theoretical discussions that can come from it and the symbology of that the movie kind of gives out. I, I remember appreciating a lot more. You mentioned some people were huge fans of it. Uh, Roger Ebert, the the late great movie critic, was a huge fan of Dark City. Uh, so much so that he, did, he provided an audio commentary on the DVD. I'm not sure if this is still available on like Blu-ray or whatever. But Ben, I would I, I would recommend, even though you don't like the movie, uh, watch the movie with Roger Ebert's audio commentary because I remember finding that very fascinating. Hmm. Um, but again, I'm not even a big fan of the movie. So <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just wondering: is there a clamoring for a Dark City? TV series, I, I guess not, but maybe there's enough there. There's like so much, like there's been so many analyses. What is the plural of analysis? Uh, an analyses, I think. Analyses <laughs> of this movie that maybe it could make for some fodder for a, a TV show, but I don't know. I I also feel like when you do that, when you take a movie that has that, like I remember Dark uh, Donnie Darko. Oh, had yeah. that and then he put out a director's cut which totally ruined <laughs> like mm -hmm. that so i'm not sure if i want an extended version of dark city yeah i think you're probably right and i think i don't know the, the idea to me is just like oh this is a piece of intellectual property like that's that's all it boils down to now like no nobody is clamoring for a dark city show but it is a thing that once existed and so maybe some people will recognize it and maybe you know for streaming services or cable networks or whatever that's literally all you need now to <laughs> to green light a show so um 
yeah, I, I guess we'll we'll see if this actually ever ends up, you know, really coming into being. Okay, we left it for the end of the show. Let's talk about what is going on with the the movie exhibition world. You know, it, it seemed like uh, the summer. It seemed like things were getting back to normal, and then all the news came out about these Delta variants. Uh, there's now a, a, a Delta Plus. Is that a new streaming service, Ben? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> the uh, so we've seen the decline already at, at the movie theater box office. Suicide Squad uh, t- took a huge hit, and I'm not sure that's just because people didn't want to see a Suicide Squad sequel or they didn't understand. It was a sequel or, you know, there was a, mm-hmm. I, there is more to it there. Yes, I agree. But it does seem like people are not as ready to go back to the movie theaters as they were a month yeah. or two ago. Um, and we're already seeing the effects of that. Venom, Let There Be Carnage was supposed to come out in September 24th. And now it's been pushed back uh, at least two weeks, three weeks to October 15th, 2021. So that is the first that we have heard i think of of the i'm I'm guessing we're going to get more of this i know during the disney investor call yesterday they were asked about uh shang chi and they were told that that, that that's still going theatrical they're not going to do premiere access as of right now that's um not in the plans so uh disney is holding their ground uh, ben do you think there's going to be more of these release date changes like it, it feels like it's the beginning of the, what what happened in you know march of yeah. 2020 i i feel the same way i feel like this is yeah the first or second you know these these early dominoes are just now beginning to fall and um you know it sucks like of, of course nobody wants this to be the outcome and especially these uh, movie studios who are just like have been holding on to this you know, these projects for so long, like imagine, uh, no time to die getting moved again. Like it just, uh, it's, there's something so, um, you know, it's so just like, you got to shake your head at it at a certain point, but, um, but when, when yeah, was that movie know. originally supposed to come out? I, I want to say it was like, uh, like April of 2020, right? I, I think it was like, oh, probably. Yeah. I think it was, yeah. One month after the <laughs> pandemic began and then it just kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. But, um, what do you think about the the idea of Shang-Chi not going to Disney Plus, Peter? Because I feel like <laughs> Disney could easily say, okay, things are bad right now. We're going to keep this movie in theaters for anybody who feels safe enough and, and comfortable enough to go. But we're also going to drop it onto Disney Plus for 30 bucks and uh, just try to you know make the best of this situation. Because the idea of moving Shang-Chi does not seem practical considering how interconnected everything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is. But um, what do you think about their decision to not put it on Disney Plus? Yeah. Also, the the premiere and junket are happening in a matter of hours, like literally hours away. Um, so I don't think they can. I mean, I, I guess they can. They did that with Mulan, right? <laughs> Mulan. I remember going to the premiere of Mulan like days before everything shut down. But uh, yeah, so them not doing premiere access. Premiere access seems like the right way to go over moving the release date but it seems like disney (laughs) uh, got themselves in a little bit of trouble with black widow and doing that you know they have that lawsuit with scarlett johansson Mm -hmm. there's rumors behind the scenes that kevin feige was very unhappy with how that was handled and how it was put on premiere access you know those are not substantiated in any way blah 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 blah. um 
But, you know, if I was Disney and I wanted to keep Kevin Feige happy, you know, how much money has Kevin Feige made for the company? More than probably anybody. So you think that they maybe will hold their ground on this one. But yeah, I think it would be the smart way to do it is to go to Premier Access. But on the other hand, a lot of these Premier Access movies have been the movies that feature minorities or more diverse cast you know yeah, but black yeah. widow is like the first you know i guess it's not the first marvel uh female superhero but it, it's it's the second and i don't know it, it's it it would be unfortunate that <laughs> it would get uh i don't know i don't want to say yeah because I mean, you got like like ryan the last dragon and soul and like yeah, yeah there, there's a pattern that is beginning to form for sure yeah so uh yeah w- what do you think they should do yeah, I, I kind of forgot about the Kevin Feige of it all. And um, I mean, I, like I understand the company's impulse to keep him happy if that is in fact part of this decision. Um, but at a certain point, like he's got to take a look at the reality of, of what's going on and sort of understand like, okay, this you know this probably isn't going to perform as well as it would have under ideal circumstances. So maybe we can uh, you know give as many people the chance to see this as possible safely. But uh I, I don't know, Peter. I guess this is above my pay grade. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe they could, like, if it totally bombs on opening weekend the next week, they could be like, hey, guys, it's now on uh, Premiere Access. Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. I didn't really think about that because they've never done that before, I don't <laughs> yeah. think. But uh, but I guess there's always the possibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if that would piss off the movie theater exhibitors or what, what the current deal with disney is in theatrical windows i don't even know i know amc has just reached a deal with warner brothers right they did yes so uh warner brothers has you know made a very very big uh announcement at the end of 2020 saying every single one of the 2021 movies that they're going to be releasing will would come out in theaters and on hbo max at the same time there's a giant deal uh, huge you know uh, headlines all over the place and and they had to do a lot of work behind the scenes to strike new deals with the talent and sort of uh, you know um, compensate people appropriately and all that something that Disney evidently did not do considering the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit. But now in 2022, and and by the way, Warner Brothers has always said like, oh, this is just going to be a one year thing. You know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to go back to, uh, or we're not going to continue doing this forever. We're going to go back to sort of the old way. Um, and we had a lot of questions about that in the early days of the pandemic, but it seems like Warner Brothers is actually uh, sticking to that now. So in 2022, there's going to be a 45 day uh exclusive theatrical window for all warner brothers releases before they can show up on streaming services like hbo max so um that is a deal that they they struck with amc and i think um i think there's another company uh cineworld that owns uh, all of the regal cinemas also signed the same 45 day window with warner brothers yeah and i know we have an article up on the site from jeremy uh, it's a guide to each movie studio's theatrical windows and what, what the current deals are. So if you want to check that out, you can check that out on slashfilm.com. But uh, do you think this is a little premature to make this deal? Because it seems like now with this Delta variant, maybe a 45-day theatrical window is is not a good thing to commit to uh, 2022. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that personally. I'm I certainly don't have access to the same information that they have access to in terms of their numbers and all of that stuff, but I, I really yeah, it seems like this might have been something that and maybe maybe there's a carve out in in the language of these contracts that they signed where, you know, if 
cases hit a certain threshold, then, you know, some of this can be altered or whatever. And they're not completely, you know, uh, binded by this deal that they've signed right now. I'm not sure of the, the details of it. It would be smart if there was something yeah. like that worked into it. Um, and I kind of hope that there is just for like everyone's collective safety. But, um, but yeah, I mean, from the outside looking in, it sort of seems like, ah, I understand what you're doing. You really, really want the theatrical industry to to bounce back in a big way in 2022 seems like uh, a safe time to to do that. But um, Delta evidently has other plans. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, maybe we're still in August. We're only like barely more than halfway through this year. So maybe things will be dramatically different by the time we get around to, you know, January. So uh, maybe this we'll look back on this and be like, oh, this actually was a, a pretty smart uh, deal after all. But um yeah, I, I remember before the summer, there was like a period of a couple weeks where if you had asked me two weeks before if we would have an end of the year, I was like, no, there's no way. And then like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like it was like, oh, it's summer. Everybody's out. Every Like it's all changed just magically right. overnight. Like I don't know how that happened. So maybe that could happen again. Uh, I guess my question to you is like, does this show Warner Brothers hand? Like I, the studios have been pushing forever for these shortened – theatrical windows and i know this is obviously shortened from what was it before 90 days yes uh you know a lot of these studios wanted to do day and date and during this pandemic they got to do day and date and uh you know warner brothers doing it with their hbo max to try to like you know fortify that member that subscribership do you think now that they did that and saw the numbers of you know what they could actually make on digital platforms do you do you think they're like, oh no, we want we want a theatrical window because we realize that we're we're definitely that's oh. going to be hmm. more money if we go to theaters. Interesting. I feel like the you know if that's the case, then uh, they're in some serious trouble because I feel like the entire <laughs> industry has has really you know pushed all of their chips in on streaming, right? Like the, you know they've spent so much money on to launch all of these different platforms. And, you know, there is going to be a bubble it's at a certain point, but I don't think that um, like Warner Brothers slash HBO Max is going to be one of the casualties of that bubble. I think they're, uh, you know, with the backing that it has, it's going to be one of those ones that sticks around or, you know, maybe acquires another one or something like that. I, I don't think that HBO Max is going to. What, what other ones do you think are that solid? I think like Netflix and Disney Plus, right? Like those are yes, the three. hundred percent. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um and probably Amazon just because there's oh, yeah, so much Amazon. money there that yeah. uh, they don't even really need Amazon Prime Video. To, it's just basically like an extra, like a bonus kind of service. Yeah. Um, I guess Apple as well has a, a ton of money, so they'll probably stick around. But I kind of feel like all of the other ones, you know, the, the Paramount Pluses of the world. The Peacocks. Um, the Peacocks. Even Hulu, which is like under Disney. Um, I, I feel like... If, yeah, th- there's there's a lot of potential for <laughs> uh, for the streaming platform landscape to look very yeah. very different in the next few years. So um, I, I don't have any insider information yeah, yeah. about anything, but uh, it just seems like um, yeah, the the idea that uh, that these studios would would be pivoting back to theatrical because they think they maybe made a mistake with leaning too hard into uh, streaming. It seems like uh, that that would be a very, very costly mistake. So I I would like to think that they're doing it just because maybe their 2022 lineup is so, um, you know, is so full of superhero movies and big, big blockbusters that have 
where the upside is so much drastically bigger than it would be by putting it on uh, on digital early that they just want to capitalize on that and not necessarily that they are um, you know having second thoughts about the uh, the entire streaming strategy. But oh, yeah. uh, I guess and we'll I'm not see. saying that they're necessarily pivot. Or I'm not even suggesting that they're pivoting back, but. This 45-day window, even though that's half of what it was, still seems long to me. <laughs> like, yeah, I, feel, I yeah. feel like the studios at this point have all the cards, and they could have pushed for a 30-day or 15-day. And uh, Yeah, I would love the – because I feel, I feel like in the beginning of the pandemic, and I could be wrong about this. Maybe you remember the, the details, but I, I think um, Universal signed a deal where it was just like – I think it was like two weeks or something where like, yeah. you know, for any movie, it's just two weeks or, you know, if it's performing well theatrically, we can just hold on to it and keep it in theaters for as long as we want. But we have the option of dropping it on on a digital platform or whatever, uh, two weeks out. And that seems like really ideal from a consumer <laughs> perspective of like somebody, you know, if a new movie comes out and you don't really feel safe about going to the theater in your area, two weeks is still you know, being able to see that film two weeks later is still puts you, uh, still gives you the ability to participate in the larger conversation about a thing without feeling like, oh, everybody already talked about this movie, you know, a month and a half ago. Uh, I've kind of missed my window on it. You know what I mean? For sure. Okay. We've reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday.